Last Sunday after the gathering, someone came up to me, I don't, don't remember who it was, and they said, so we're going to go through the letter to Philemon in four weeks, which means that next week you're going to preach on four verses. And I said, yes. And they smiled and they said, I'll believe it when I see it. So yesterday at about 6 o'clock, I finished two verses and I gave up. And so I don't know who that was, but you, you win. <laughs> I'm curious if anyone in the room knows this woman. Anyone recognize her? We got some hands. Got a couple of hands. This is Corey Ten Boom. Corey, Corey Ten Boom and her family were members of the Dutch Reformed Church. They became active in the Dutch underground after German, Germany invaded the Netherlands in May of 1940. The family had a secret room built behind a wall in Corey's bedroom where they hid Jews and other refugees during Nazi occupation. They assisted more than 600 Jews before the Gestapo raided their house in February of 1944 and arrested the entire family. Corey's father, Casper, died in prison. Corey and her sister, Betsy, were sent to the Ravensbrück concentration camp in Germany. Betsy died in the labor camp, and Corey was released shortly after Betsy's death. Corey was later told that her release from the labor camp was due to a, an administrative error, and that the following week, all the women in her age group were sent to the gas chamber. Corey wrote of her experiences in her book, The Hiding Place, uh, which was published in 1971. Um, our brother John has a fun story about meeting her and uh, spending some time talking with Corey. One of my favorite stories in her book took place after the war. Corey had returned to Germany in 1947 and spoke at a church on the topic of forgiveness. And here's what happened in her own words. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him. The former SS man who stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. <clears throat> he was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly, it was all there. Uh, the, room, uh, the room full of mocking men, uh, the heaps of clothing, and uh, Betsy's pain-blanched face. Uh, he came up to me as the church was emptying. How grateful I am for your message, Fräulein, he said, to think that as you say, he washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, 
vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I couldn't. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. So again, I prayed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. While into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered, Corey wrote, that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives us, along with the command, the love itself. I love that story. Because I have been forgiven so much. I also share that story this morning because when I introduced Philemon last week, I presented the overarching theme of the letter as reconciliation, and I said nothing about forgiveness, and I want to be very clear. Reconciliation as we find it in Philemon includes forgiveness, but forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing, and it's helpful for us to make a distinction between them. Forgiveness at its most basic level is to dismiss or pardon a debt. It's to release someone. Of course, if you want a full definition, you have to go back about 400 years and ask the Puritans. This is Thomas Watson. This is how he defined forgiveness. Forgiveness is when we strive, we fight against all thoughts of revenge. If it be in our power to do our enemies mischief, we will not. We wish well to them. We grieve at their calamities. We pray for them. We seek reconciliation with them. We show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them. This is gospel forgiving. That's forgiveness. Reconciliation, on the other hand, is when the person who has been offended is restored to a friendly relationship with the one who offended them. When the person hurt is restored to a friendly relationship with the one who hurt them. I've heard the difference described like this. Forgiveness focuses on the offense. Reconciliation focuses on the relationship. Forgiveness requires no relationship. 
But reconciliation requires a relationship in which two people in agreement are walking toward the same goal. Forgiveness can take place with only one person. Reconciliation requires at least two. Forgiveness is one way. Reconciliation is reciprocal, occurring two ways. Forgiveness releases the offender. That's the way it's typically defined. Reconciliation is an effort to rejoin the offender. Forgiveness involves a change in thinking about the offender. Reconciliation involves a change in behavior by the offender. Forgiveness is a free gift to the one who has broken trust. Reconciliation is a restored relationship that's based upon restored trust. Forgiveness is unconditional, regardless of repentance. Reconciliation is conditional, and it's based upon repentance. As believers, we are obligated to forgive Lord, how often will, I f- will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Peter asked Jesus. As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Here's Thomas Watson again. This great duty of forgiving others is a crossing the stream. It's contrary to flesh and blood. You see, men forget kindnesses, but they remember injuries. But it is an indispensable duty to forgive. We're not bound to trust an enemy, but we are bound to forgive him. That's important. We must forgive, but reconciliation requires both parties. We aim to restore the relationship. We seek reconciliation, but it isn't always possible. So far as it depends upon us, though, we live peaceably with all. That's Romans 12, and it's a very important text for this discussion. We'll come back to it later. Forgiveness, then, is different than reconciliation but it's included in it. Therefore, forgiveness is key to our understanding of what Paul is asking Philemon to do in this letter. Remember the backstory. Paul is in prison in Rome. He wrote this little letter to Philemon, his friend and fellow worker in spreading the gospel. From what we know of Philemon, he's a wealthy and generous believer from Colossae. His slave Onesimus stole from him and then fled to Rome where in God's providence he met Paul and became a believer. This letter is Paul's appeal to Philemon, not as an apostolic demand, but as an appeal from one believer to another to forgive and to be reconciled with Onesimus. It's interesting, Paul doesn't use either of those words in this little letter. He doesn't mention forgiveness The word, he doesn't mention reconciliation, but that's exactly what he's asking Philemon to do here. 
Take a look at verses 15 and 16. Paul is pleading with Philemon to take Onesimus back. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. You see, if, if Philemon merely took Onesimus back, that could be forgiveness. There could be forgiveness involved in taking him back. But to receive him, that same word receive can be translated welcome him. To welcome Onesimus back as a brother, and not just as a brother, but as a beloved brother, will require both forgiveness and reconciliation. Not only must the offense be forgiven, but the relationship must be restored. In fact, in this case, the relationship won't merely be restored. It will be radically changed for the better. It will go from master and slave to brother in Christ. And what's the foundation for this kind of forgiveness and reconciliation? Paul gave it to us in his greeting in verse 3. Grace to you and peace. That's the 20,000-foot aerial view of this little letter. Blood-bought grace is the foundation for peace with God and for peace among brothers. Vertical peace and horizontal peace are grounded in the grace of God. And now we get to see how it works. So I encourage you to have your Bibles open so you can see the whole text. We're in verses 4 and 5 this week, and we're going to read verse 4. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. As Paul moves now from his greeting toward the body of his letter, he gives a prayer report. That's not my term, but I really like it because it describes this feature in Paul's letters. Paul is reporting to Philemon that he prays specific things for him. He's encouraging Philemon and he's paving the way for the rest of his letter. It's always encouraging, is it not, to know that someone is praying for you. That a brother or sister has been in the throne room of grace on your behalf. I get prayer reports sometimes from a couple of brothers on Saturday or Sunday mornings as I'm preparing to preach. It is so encouraging. I need it. And you know, it's really easy to do. All it takes is a text. I'm praying for you this morning, brother. I know you're going through a hard time, sister. I heard you were sick. You lost your job. You're wrestling with a particular sin. I'm praying for you. What a comfort. We should do more of that at Living Water Church. We should pray for one another. We're brothers and sisters, right? Pray for one another, and then let's encourage one another with prayer reports like the Apostle Paul does. In this prayer report, Paul tells Philemon that he's thankful for what he's heard about God's grace in Philemon's life. And he starts with thanksgiving. He is thankful. We cannot skip past this little fact. This man is in prison. He's been there for some time now. He's old. He's lived a hard life. His retirement plan probably isn't what he imagined back when he was a Pharisee. 
Times are tough. And yet he wants Philemon to know that when he prays for him, he is thankful. This is a man who's learned to be content in every situation. He feels gratitude in spite of his circumstances. He is thankful in the midst of suffering. And that doesn't come naturally, but it's a powerful testimony to the working of God's grace in his heart. Of course, Paul's thankfulness here is directed not to Philemon, but to God. And his thankfulness is grounded in two things that he's heard and that he knows about Philemon. And this is where this morning's sermon gets tricky. Let me, I'm going to give you the big picture, and then we're going to dig into how to interpret this next verse. Some of you may have already seen the difficulty. In Paul's prayer report, he gives us insight into the character of Philemon. And he's going to show us three things that mark this man as a man who forgives and reconciles. That's the core message of this morning's text. Three marks of the grace in power, of grace-empowered forgiveness and reconciliation in Philemon. We'll cover two of them this morning, and we'll cover the third one next week. Here's another way of introducing that thought and these three marks. Take a look at verse 21 and ask one question about it. Paul says, confident of your obedience, Philemon, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. So here's the question. What makes Paul so sure? What makes Paul so confident? How does he know that Philemon will forgive and, and be reconciled with Onesimus? Well, the answer is in what Paul has heard and what he knows about this man. They are the marks of grace in Philemon's character. And we find them in this prayer report. And they are faith, love, and fellowship. First, grace-empowered forgiveness and reconciliation is marked by faith in the Lord Jesus. The character of the man that is is marked by faith. We see it in verse 5. Why does Paul thank God when he remembers Philemon in his prayers? Because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Well, this is a tricky verse to unravel. If you're reading it carefully, the verse doesn't make any sense. Here's why. Paul hears of Philemon's love and of his faith. That's simple enough. His love and faith are toward the Lord Jesus. We can understand that. But then he adds, and for all the saints. Love towards all the saints makes sense, but what does it mean to have faith for all the saints? That makes no sense. And we don't find that idea anywhere else in Scripture, at least not clearly. What does it mean to have faith for all the saints? Even Calvin admits there is an inversion of the natural order here. That's how he says it. I found at least five different ways of understanding this verse, and each of those five ways has multiple variations of each one, and I am not going to bore you with that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you two of the most common interpretations and then show you where I landed, and then you can decide for yourself. So 
One, Paul could be shifting the meaning of the word faith mid-sentence. In the original, the word faith can mean either faith or faithful. It depends on the context. Paul here is writing informally to a friend, so he's not necessarily being precise. He could be saying, I heard of your love toward the Lord Jesus and of your love for the saints. I also heard of your faith toward the Lord Jesus and your faithfulness to the saints. You hear the shift? Faith to faithfulness. That's one possibility, and there are variations of that. The second interpretation is where I landed. This sentence is what is called a chiasm, which means it has a crisscross structure. Chiasms are found all over the scriptures. They're especially common in Hebrew poetry. And here's what a chiasm is. The word comes from the Greek letter he, which I probably didn't pronounce right. Key, which looks like an X. If you can remember that, you will always remember what a chiasm is. A chiasm is a reversal of the order of words in what would otherwise be a parallel construction. It's easier to see than it is to explain. Two examples. The first are the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 2, verse 27. The pattern is marked by letters, and the reversal of order is marked by the corresponding letter with a tick. I told you this is risky. A, the Sabbath was made. B, for man, and then there's the reversal. B, not man. A, for the Sabbath. So A, B, B, A. A corresponds with A, B with B. There's a pattern and a reversal. Let's look at... Genesis 9, 6. A, whoever sheds. B, the blood. C, of man. Then the reversal. C, by man. B, shall his blood. A, be shed. That's what many scholars believe that Paul is doing in this verse. Here's what it would look like. I hear of your love and of the faith. Then the reversal the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. A-B-B-A, love, faith, faith, love. So A corresponds with A, B with B. His faith is toward Christ and his love is for the saints. Now, some of you have zero interest in all that chiasm jazz. And you're wondering how you can get the last five minutes of your life back. <laughs> Some of you, though, might be thinking this. Okay, how am I supposed to read the Bible and understand it? If it's this technical, how can I just read it and know what it says? Well, I don't want you to think that it takes special tools or lots of time. So I don't want to leave it sitting like that. Here's what I want to do. I want to show you how you can do this for yourself with no special tools and no hours of research. First, this is two steps. First, look up the cross-references, okay? They're little numbers called superscripts next to words or phrases in your Bible that give us other verses that can shed light on the verses in question. So if you look up this particular verse, Philemon 5, you'll find at least two cross-references in your Bible. Colossians 1, 
4 and Ephesians 1.15. Look them up and you'll find that Paul uses very similar language in his other letters. In both cases, Christ or faith is for Christ and love is for the saints. And so it becomes very, very clear what's happening here. That's the first thing. And that's called letting Scripture interpret Scripture. It's taking the, the unclear passages and focusing on what is clear to help explain what is relatively unclear. So that's the first thing. The next thing is to simply compare other English translations, which can be done very easily online. Here's how verse 5 reads in the New International Version and the Christian Standard Bible. Again, you will see that faith is in Christ and that love is for the saints. So what these translators did is they simply took it, they recognized that it was a chiasm, and then they unraveled it for us. But other translations like the NASB, um, the ESV that we use, and, and the King James and such uh, don't do that. And so you have to think it through yourself. So check and compare. Check cross-references and then compare English translations. And you'll usually come up with a sound conclusion, no special tools, and not a lot of time. Now, that's the excursus. It's, it's aside. Set it aside. We're going to close that. And we're going to get back to point one. Grace-empowered forgiveness and reconciliation is marked by faith in the Lord Jesus. The grace of God produces faith. That is, faith is a gift of God's grace, not the cause of it. We know that from passages like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. But why do I say that faith in Christ is a mark of grace-empowered forgiveness and reconciliation. What's the connection there? There are at least two. First, faith in Christ spurs the graciously forgiven to forgive graciously. Faith in Christ spurs the graciously forgiven to forgive graciously. I added the word graciously there so that we could have another chiasm. A-B-B-A. Graciously forgiven to forgive graciously. Be kind to one another, Paul says, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. If you have faith in Christ, you trust that his blood shed for you on the cross has forgiven you, has brought forgiveness. Faith in Christ results in a new heart with new desires, desires to love and desires to forgive. It acknowledges that Christ forgave you a debt so great that it becomes unthinkable, and mark that word, it might not be right, that it becomes unthinkable for you, the forgiven, to withhold forgiveness from someone else. That's why you and I need to keep the gospel fresh in our minds. We need to do as Luther said and beat it into our heads day after day. When you start to forget how great a debt you have been forgiven, it gets easier and easier not to forgive. But if your own forgiveness is fresh in your mind, it becomes unthinkable not to forgive. This applies to every sin committed against you. From aggravated assault to the guy at the office slandering you to the harsh word your wife said to you last night after dinner. 
If the forgiveness of your own sins is fresh on your mind, it becomes unthinkable not to forgive others. And maybe it's more than unthinkable. Maybe being forgiven of so much actually puts you under an obligation to forgive. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus told a parable about an unforgiving slave. And it follows the verse I read earlier where Peter asked Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Jesus answered Peter with this parable. The kingdom of heaven, he said, may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, a talent was about 20 years worth of wages for a laborer. 10,000 talents then would take this slave, give or take a year, 200,000 years for him to repay. Needless to say, he couldn't pay, so his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Of course, that wasn't possible. But out of pity, the master of that servant released him and forgave his debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. A denarii was about one day's wage, which meant that this fellow slave owed him about three months' worth of wages, a puny amount compared to what he used to owe. What did he do? He seized his fellow slave. He began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Sound familiar? Those words should have unnerved the forgiven slave. They were the same words that he used when he begged for mercy. But no, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, Jesus said, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. I said it was unthinkable for the forgiven not to forgive, but Jesus might be taking it further in this parable. He seems to say that the forgiven slave was under an obligation to forgive because he had been forgiven so much. The master calls the unforgiving slave wicked, and then he questions him, should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? 
Well, yes, he should have. He was obligated to forgive his fellow slave, and not doing so was wicked. And that outraged his fellow slaves, and it outraged his master, who had forgiven him so much. The problem, I think, is that we, we often fail to grasp the depth of our own debt that we were forgiven. Our debt of sin was infinitely greater than any debt that could possibly be owed to us by any fellow human being. Having been forgiven so much, it is an outrage for us not to forgive others. So what Paul is saying here to Philemon is, I'm confident that you'll forgive and that you'll reconcile with Onesimus. I know that because I know this about you. Your character is marked by faith in Christ. That means that you know that your sins, which were many, have been forgiven. And as you look back on the cross and see just how much you've been forgiven, I know that that will spur you on. You will feel the weight of the obligation to forgive as Christ forgave you. Your forgiveness, Philemon, came at an infinitely greater cost to Christ then your forgiveness of Onesimus will cost you. I know that you will do what's required of you. So, not only does faith in Christ spur the graciously forgiven to forgive graciously, but it also does this, number two. It also frees you from the need to take revenge. I said we'd return to Romans chapter 12. Let's go there now. Romans chapter 12, verses 18 and 19. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now here's Paul's logic. Forgive from the heart, seek reconciliation, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with everyone. That isn't always possible, but that's always your aim. But here's what you never do. Never avenge yourself. Do not take personal revenge. Yes, what happened to you was wrong. Yes, it was unjust. Yes, it is okay, even good, to desire and to pray for justice. But do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave it to the wrath of God. Why? Because vengeance belongs to him. And he promised that he will repay. That's a promise. The wrath of God will avenge all sin. In hell or at the cross, the wrath of God will avenge all sin. Every sin, every sin against him, Every sin against you, every lie, every harsh word spoken to you, every evil deed done against you will be made right. The Lord will execute justice. He will repay. John Piper puts it like this. God undertakes vengeance against sin, not only by means of hell, but also by means of the cross. All sin will be avenged severely, thoroughly, and justly either in hell or at the cross. The sins of the unrepentant will be avenged in hell. The sins of the repentant were avenged at the cross. 
That means that there's no longer a need for you to take revenge into your own hands. Why? Because, and this is Hebrews 10, because we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If faith in Christ spurs graciously forgiven people to forgive graciously by looking back at the cross, this is a looking forward. This is faith in Christ clinging to a promise when you've been hurt. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Faith in Christ is banking upon that. Here's Piper again. If we believe this promise, we will not presume to take vengeance into our own hands. Rather, we will glorify the all-sufficiency of the cross and the terrible justice of hell by living in the assurance that God and not we will set all things right. Ours is to love. God's is to settle accounts, is to settle accounts justly. And faith in God's grace is the key to our freedom and forgiveness. That's exactly what struck me when I read those words from Corey Ten Boom. As she faced her former SS guard, struggling to forgive him, he didn't even recognize her. Struggling to forgive him, she said to herself, Jesus had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? She got it. In other words, this man's sins against her and even far greater sins against his own creator were covered by the blood of Christ shed for him on the cross. Justice was served. It was not for her to take revenge, to withhold forgiveness, or a handshake of reconciliation, rather she must leave it to the wrath of God, even the wrath of God that was poured out upon his son on the cross. So Paul is saying to Philemon, I'm confident that you'll forgive and that you'll rec reconcile with Onesimus because I know this about you. Your character is marked by faith in Christ. That means that you trust him to avenge Onesimus' sins against you. As a repentant brother in Christ, you know that his sins were avenged at the cross, which is a humbling thought. I know you'll forgive him and be reconciled to this man. I know you'll do what's required of you because you are free from the need to take revenge. So, grace-empowered forgiveness and reconciliation is marked by faith in the Lord Jesus. One, because it spurs the forgiven to forgive, and two, because it frees from the need to take revenge. The second mark in verse five is love for the saints. Paul thanks God because he heard of Philemon's love for the saints, not only his faith, but his love. Because of that, he knew Philemon would forgive and reconcile with Onesimus. Why? Quite simply, because love forgives. Or to flip it around, to forgive is to show love. It is one aspect of love. This should require little explanation because I think it's, it's obvious. If you love someone, your heart is inclined to forgive them. Love is the manifestation 
of true faith in Christ. If you're in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit, and the fruit of the Holy Spirit within you is love, and love forgives. And if you're in Christ, you are putting on love. Love is the capstone virtue that includes forgiveness. It's the overcoat we learned about in Colossians. And forgiveness is among the virtues that love encapsulates. Put on then, remember? Put on then compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these Christ-like virtues, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love forgives. And from our most famous description of love in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient and it's kind and it is not rude and it doesn't insist on its own way. It is not irritable and it keeps no records of wrong. That's the New International Version. It keeps no records of wrong. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. That's, that's love. Loving actions and loving attitudes of the heart that preclude any notion of unforgiveness. Love forgives. The Apostle Peter tells us the same thing. Above all, he wrote, keep loving one another earnestly. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Love forgives. And if those texts don't convince you, then think on this. How did God put his love on display for you? Answer, he put his love on display in the very act that secured your forgiveness. In this is the love of God. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. It was put on display among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love forgives. Let me close this morning with a challenge and an exhortation. I challenge you this morning to examine your relationships, past and present. Is there anyone you need to forgive? You know, it's difficult to know. It's difficult to know our hearts and to know whether or not we've forgiven. We fool ourselves. Sometimes we think we've forgiven. Sometimes we need to be face-to-face with our former SS guard so we can wrestle with it and know for sure whether or not we forgive. If there is someone, forgive them. If it's a struggle, pray like Corey. Lord Jesus, forgive me and help me to forgive him. You have faith in Christ Jesus. And that faith spurs you on. It spurs the graciously forgiven to forgive graciously. And it frees you from the need for revenge. Forgive. And if it's safe and if it's possible, seek reconciliation. If there's anyone from whom you need to ask forgiveness, seek forgiveness from them. It might be the most difficult and the most painful thing you do this week. Ask for forgiveness. Make no excuses. Don't use the word but when you do it. 
own your sin, name the offense, and don't just say that you're sorry. Ask for forgiveness. That's my challenge. Examine your relationships, forgive, and ask to be forgiven. Now here's my exhortation. The last thing I want to do is to paint a, an unrealistic picture of forgiveness and reconciliation. It is messy and it is hard. You have been hurt. You have suffered. But here's what I want you to know. There is great comfort in Christ. No one ever suffered more unjustly than he did. What was perpetrated against Christ during the crucifixion was the most violent act in all of human history. And that's not an exaggeration because this man was perfectly innocent and we slaughtered him like an animal. And as he hung there, bloody and dying, between two criminals, one on his right and one on his left, he said, Father, forgive them. That unfathomable love on the cross is what secured the forgiveness and reconciliation that you and I have with God, and it's the foundation of our reconciliation with one another. It is grace and it is peace. I exhort you then to follow his example. Follow the example of Christ crucified. The Apostle Peter put it so well. In 1 Peter 2, verses 21 and 23, he said, For to this you have been called. He's talking to suffering people, people who have been wronged. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Follow in the steps of your Lord. Entrust yourself to him who judges justly. Let me pray for you. Father, forgiveness and reconciliation is such a, such a difficult thing. So Father, we just thank you that we, we get this picture of, of a man named Philemon who's got this character these marks in his character of your grace that you've worked in him. So, Father, I, I pray that you would work the same thing in our hearts. Um, Father, I pray that our character would be marked um, with these things and that we would be men and women who forgive and reconcile. Father, we look to you and to your son as the example here. We look to your grace to make this happen in our hearts because it is a crossing of a stream. It goes against our nature 
to forgive. Lord, we want revenge. So, Father, I pray that you would show us your grace. Bring to mind, Father, how much we have been forgiven so that we can glory in that and that we'll be free from revenge and that we will be motivated, indeed obligated, to forgive others. Father, do that work in our hearts for your glory. Do it for your glory, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.